Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Ronald Henry. Ronald Henry, as Cardinal Ronald Henry, thank you very much, was responsible for delivering the final nail in the coffin of the Spanish match when he returned from Rome with the news that His Excellency wasn't all that happy with the Anglo-Spanish marriage after all. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, then head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 31 of The Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all to the Thirty Years' War. The last time, episode 30, a landmark episode for us, we examined the tumultuous year of 1623 in Anglo-Spanish diplomacy. We saw the Spanish match-marriage idea fail, largely because of Spain's unwillingness or inability to solve the Palatine crisis, because everything was connected at this stage, don't you know? With Emperor Ferdinand completely devoted to the cause of his own victory, and with... Emperor Ferdinand's debts and promises outstanding, there was no question of peace unless Frederick capitulated on every level, which Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, well, former Elector Palatine, was of course unwilling to do, so long as there was even the slightest chance of his restitution by force of arms. Whose arms these were didn't necessarily matter. King James hadn't yet given up on the idea of marrying his son, Charles, to the Spanish princess Maria, but the omens were certainly not at all good by late 1623. In spite of staying most of the year in Madrid, impressing his hosts, and coming incredibly close to making a deal, Prince Charles would be forced to withdraw disappointed, largely due to the Spanish reneging on their original promise to restore Frederick unconditionally to his ancestral lands. Instead, Frederick was offered the prospect of sending his son to Vienna to marry a daughter of the Habsburgs, whereupon, once that child grew up, he would regain his electoral title from Maximilian. To facilitate this offer, Frederick would have to submit himself to Ferdinand's mercy, commit to pay millions of Reichsthalers, and essentially remain disinherited for the rest of his life. Unsurprisingly, this deal was unacceptable to the Winter King. He urged his allies to act in his name and in the name of justice, the imperial constitution and Protestants everywhere. Europe, for so long quiet in this regard, Frederick mostly being supported by just a few rebels, was beginning to stir as 1623 became 1624. 
In this episode, our aim is to examine these developments, to assess how pro-war England actually was, and to examine the other trends which were moving in favour of Frederick as the so-called Hague Alliance ever so gradually came into being. If all this juicy diplomacy sounds good to you, then great, I will now take you to England in late 1623, when a shift was underway in the English psyche. They think that they alone are enough to ruin Spain, and to put 100,000 men into Flanders, that all ought to obey them at once. This was the unflattering analysis given on the state of English public opinion in late 1623, by Frederick's Palatine ambassador to England, Johann von Rusdorf. Not only were the pro-war Englishmen infected with optimism, bordering on naivety when it came to England's military prospects, the entire country wasn't yet united behind a common course, and as Rusdorf put it eloquently, When the dogs are unwilling, it is difficult to hunt. The prospect of hunting wasn't made much easier by the unfavourable military situation by late 1623. Thanks to the failure of the marriage negotiations, Spain remained entrenched along the Rhine, and the Holy Roman Emperor retained his Catholic League army, led by the undefeated Count Tilly. Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania, Frederick's most unpredictable but also unreliable ally, had, true to form, made peace with the Emperor in mid-November 1623, just before terrible winter conditions settled in. Earlier in the year, in August, Christian of Brunswick had suffered a disastrous defeat in the Battle of Statlon, near the Dutch border, and Ernst of Mansfeld had stayed put in his quarters near Alsace and couldn't hold his unpaid troops together for much longer. If England wanted to intervene in Frederick's name, a brand new alliance would have to be crafted, and this mission would sink or swim in 1624. Once the Spanish match had been abandoned, King James did lean strongly towards a plan which would forcibly restore Frederick to his homeland. Ernst of Mansfeld, who dissolved his army in January 1624 for want of pay, actually arrived in London in spring 1624 to participate in this plan, and when in England, he was treated akin to something of a national hero. If Mansfeld would recruit 10,000 infantry and 3,000 horse, King James declared his intentions to provide him with £20,000 a month. Such initiatives seem to suggest that King James was all in, which is crazy considering how slow he was getting to this point, but in reality, several caveats surrounding his interventionist policy were already making themselves felt. The first of these caveats were that James would not act alone. He had sent feelers to the French and to the Dutch, but neither of these powers would act without the English acting first, and James wouldn't act until they did. Second caveat on the list was that James didn't actually want war with Spain. He only wanted Frederick restored to his lands, and the king found his actions greatly restricted. This brings us to our third point, because King James couldn't acquire the monies he needed from Parliament, since British statesmen wanted a war in support of Protestantism. This religiously motivated war would demand an attack on Spain in league with the Dutch, but since James didn't want to embroil his kingdom in a Spanish war, and really just wanted to restore Frederick to the Palatinate, he found that he was at loggerheads with Parliament yet again. It seems, commented the Palatine ambassador, Rusdorf, that we quoted earlier, that the English advance one step and go three backwards, seeing that they are not so inflamed anymore to declare war against the Spaniards. 
With the campaigning season of 1624 fast approaching, and no preparations save the hosting of Mansfeld having taken place, it began to seem increasingly unlikely that 1624 would be the year of the Winter King. Inactive though it was on the battlefield, England made 1624 its most active diplomatic year yet. Denmark, Sweden, France, the Netherlands, Venice and Savoy all received ambassadors, and a further diplomatic mission was sent to venture through northern Germany, with Saxony and Brandenburg being the major targets of this diplomatic offensive. Frederick established and then maintained a relationship with each of these German ambassadors, which granted him greater information about the pace of rumour and events in the empire. To his horror, Frederick learned that the emperor intended to call an imperial diet to confirm the transfer of Frederick's electoral titles to Maximilian of Bavaria. This act would have made it a great deal more difficult to protest in the future, and it prompted Frederick to make another appeal to King James. Frederick appealed, For the sake of his children, his honour, reputation and promise, because we have followed his majesty's will and strong threats out of dutiful and filial respect, only in the point of the said sequestration of Frankenthal, but also in all other impositions applied to us, which has, as it were, bound our hands and feet and made the business so burdensome. Frederick was certain that an Anglo-French force led by Mansfeld would secure his restitution, but for the aforementioned reasons, neither King James nor his opposite, King Louis XIII of France, proved willing to move first. With no monarch willing to stick their neck out for Frederick, the dispossessed elector was provided with many expressions of goodwill but little else. Considering this flurry of diplomatic activity engaged in by the British king in the months before his death in March 1625, it would perhaps be unfair to write England off as diplomatically bankrupt, as one historian has seen fit to do. Although his high-minded diplomacy failed to wrest the naive results that he wanted, one cannot deny that in his own way, James did try his best. He was faced with the twin problems at home of a recalcitrant parliament, which wanted its own way in the potential conflict with Spain, and the familiar threat to stability which continued to grow from soaring anti-Spanish sentiment. Sentiments which were fanned, as before, by public literature, this time in the form of theatre. A game at chess was only the latest scandal to rock Anglo-Spanish relations in 1624, which were already on the rocks thanks to the failed Spanish match idea. Over the 6th to the 16th of August 1624, a play with unmistakable undertones and not-so-subtle subliminal messages was hosted at London's Globe Theatre. The man responsible for a game at chess was Thomas Middleton, who had his first and last hit with the performance, and what a hit it was. The play was performed nine times in front of sell-out audiences, who were treated to depictions of characters they knew of very well. The English were depicted as whites, with their white king, King James, white duke, the Duke of Buckingham, and the white knight, or Prince Charles, being contrasted with the Spanish blacks, and the black king, King Philip IV, the Black Knight, Count Gondomar, the former ambassador, all making an appearance. By tapping into the anti-Spanish feeling which was rampant at the time, Middleton's play became the talk of the country. All the news I have heard since my coming to town is of a new play. It is called A Game at Chess, but it may be a vox populi, for by report it is six times worse against the Spaniard. This was how John Woolley, the secretary of the English ambassador in Brussels, 
recorded his interpretation of the play, which he had returned to London specifically to see for himself. John Woolley's mention of Vox Populi recalls that pamphlet by Thomas Scott, which was released in 1620, and which vilified the King of Spain, and in particular his ambassador, Count Gondomar, who was understandably less than pleased at his unflattering depiction. Indeed, Middleton had read his way through the full extent of anti-Spanish literature available at the time, and he was certainly influenced to shape his play around these works. Thus, in Middleton's play, the aim was clearly to capture the essence of that misunderstood ambassador again. The organisers of the performance even procured some of Gondomar's old clothes to add to the authenticity. In his reports back home to Brussels, from London, John Woolley was convinced that someone would be hanged for the play's incendiary contents, but this didn't happen. Indeed, Woolley's suspicions and concerns shed some light on the political climate in Britain at the time, and on the prevalence of anti-Spanish feeling within King James's own court. Upon learning of the performance, the Spanish angrily protested its contents and its unflattering message, but in Woolley's opinion, which turned out to be erroneous, the Master of Revels had signed off on it. It is thought not without leave from the higher powers, I mean the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Buckingham, and if not the King, for they all loathe to have it forbidden, and by report laugh heartily at it. Although John Woolley exaggerated the King's enjoyment of this performance, as we'll see, Woolley was not the only person to see a game at chess as an arm of English foreign policy and of an indication, from a frustrated King James, that he was now willing to offend Spain and strengthen his position by rallying anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic elements to his side. As the historian J. Dover Wilson understood, The best interpretation seems to be that Middleton's A Game at Chess was itself a pawn in the game of foreign policy which Prince Charles and the Duke of Buckingham were, in 1624, playing against the Spanish ambassador. The true message behind and purpose of the play was more complex. It appears unlikely that the play had any political end in mind, and that Middleton's goal went no further than attaining some level of success in London's drama scene, by capitalising upon several themes which were rife at that time in English society, those themes being hostility towards Spain, suspicion towards Catholics, and even a fear of conversions from Protestant to Catholic. The storyline of the play was essentially a commentary on that infamous diplomatic act of the previous year, Prince Charles's voyage to Madrid in his quest to secure the Spanish match. In A Game at Chess, though, Charles and Buckingham are depicted as not travelling with marriage in mind, but for more patriotic reasons. To break the grip of the Spanish over the king and country, although in this case it was depicted as breaking the influence of the blacks over the whites, Buckingham and Charles travelled to Madrid, where the Prince of Wales disingenuously declared his love for Princess Maria and pretended to place himself at the mercy of the Spanish court in a bid to draw out a confession from Spain about Philip IV's true intentions. While in the company of the Spanish, both men made their confessions of greed, lechery, gluttony and ambition, which lulled the Spanish into making similar confessions and professing the real reason for their instigation of the Thirty Years' War. That reason being, a long-suspected mission to acquire a universal monarchy. Thus, a game at chess managed the simultaneous feat at poking some fun at the Duke of Buckingham, who was at his most popular during this period thanks to his zealous hatred for all things Spanish, and also exposing the true intentions of Spain and its rotten statesmen. 
Unsurprisingly, the play caused a storm in the diplomatic as much as the domestic theatre. Charged with responding to such affronts was the resident Spanish ambassador at the time, Don Carlos Coloma, who had replaced Gondomar from summer 1622. Initially well-respected and well-treated, with the waning of Spanish influence in England after the Spanish match failed, Ambassador Coloma could not hide his sense of horror at what he had experienced when he attended a performance of A Game at Chess. In a series of letters sent to James's court and to Madrid, Coloma communicated his serene repulsion and indignation in words which are well worth recounting here. On the 10th of August 1624, Coloma wrote to King James's court, which was then in the country and away from London, saying that, Yesterday and today the players, called your majesty's men, have acted in London, a play that is so scandalous, so impious, barbarous and so offensive to my royal master, if perhaps his known greatness and the inestimable worth of his royal person were capable of receiving offence from any man, least of all from such vile persons as are usually the authors and actors of such follies, that I am compelled to take up my pen, and in a few words, and with all I owe your majesty, to beg your majesty one of two things. Either that, your majesty would be pleased to order the authors and actors of said play to be publicly punished as an example, by which means your majesty will satisfy his own honour and the reputation of the English nation, which has been so much smirched by actions that are so vile and so unworthy of honourable men. Or that your majesty would order that a ship be given me in which I may cross to Flanders with the necessary guarantees granted to ambassadors of other sovereigns and leave to depart instantly. I await, indifferently, either decision. Of course, Ambassador Coloma didn't just write to King James, he also wrote to King Philip IV of Spain about what he had seen and heard, and he added a description of the performance with a palpable sense of disgust pervading the correspondence. The actors, whom they call here the King's Men, have recently acted and are still acting in London, a play that so many people come to see that there were more than 3,000 persons here on the day that the audience was smallest. There was such merriment, hubbub and applause that even if I had been many leagues away it would not have been possible for me not to have taken notice of it, and notorious baseness, not merely excessive tolerance, if I had paid no attention to it or neglected it. The subject of this play is a game one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...of chess with white houses and black houses, their kings and other pieces acted by the players, and the Kings of the Blacks has easily been taken for our Lord the King because of his youth, dress and other details. The first act, or rather game, was played by their ministers, impersonated by the white pieces, and the Jesuits by the black ones. Besides this, those who saw the play relate so many details and atrocious and filthy words that I have not thought fit to offend your excellency's ears with them. In these two acts and in the third, the manner of which I do not know in detail, they hardly showed anything but the cruelty of Spain and the treachery of Spaniards, and all that was set forth so personally that they did not even exclude royal persons. The last act ended with a long, obstinate struggle between all the whites and the blacks, and in it he who acted the Prince of Wales heartily beat and kicked the Count of Gondomar into hell, which consisted of a great hole and hideous figures, and the white king drove the black king and even his queen into hell almost as offensively, all this has been so much applauded and enjoyed by the mob that here, where no play has been acted for more than one day consecutively, this one has been acted on four, and each day the crowd is greater. Within this same letter, Ambassador Coloma made an interesting observation when he added that It cannot be pleaded that those who repeat and hear these insults are merely four rogues, because during these last four days, more than 12,000 persons have all heard the play of A Game at Chess, for so they call it, including all the nobility still in London. All these people come out of the theatre, so inflamed against Spain that, as a few Catholics have told me who went secretly to see the play, my person would not be safe in the streets. Others have advised me to keep to my house with a good guard, and this is being done. Let your excellency consider whether I could pass over this in silence. Finally, sir, nothing else but war is to be expected from these people. Let your excellency believe me, I beg and pray, even if for certain reasons it suits us to defer it. Our best plan is to show bravery and resolution now, rather than allow them to increase their strength. Yet, in spite of Ambassador Coloma's certainty that a game at chess was a signal for war, the reply that King James sent to his first letter assured the ambassador of the royal family's profound shock and horror at the performance's great insolence and boldness, adding that in the case of the punishment of the actors and playwright concerned, complete satisfaction and content will be given in everything. King James insisted that he had not known about the performance until Coloma told him about it, a claim which may strike us as bizarre, but the plea does hold elements of truth. It is unlikely James feigned surprise in his correspondence with the Spanish ambassador, for he was to ask his courtiers, around the same time, why the first notice thereof should be brought to him by a foreign ambassador, while so many ministers of his own are thereabouts and cannot but have heard of it. Judging from this recorded reaction, it would appear that the anti-Spanish statesmen supported and aided their performance of a game at chess rather than either James or even Charles having sponsored it. Indeed, if Charles and the Duke of Buckingham considered the leaders of the anti-Spanish faction by this point, if they had been responsible for the performance, one is struck by the extent to which 
their plan to use this play for their anti-Spanish schemes misfired. And it misfired because, notwithstanding its riotous popularity, a game of chess was too scandalous for King James to countenance, and after nine performances on the 16th of August 1624, a game of chess was no longer allowed to be performed. The storm caused by the performance of this play reminds us not only of the progressively anti-Spanish sentiments of the British people, but also of the intensely cautious behaviour of King James. It is also worth considering the fact that, thanks to the depictions of the country's most important figures within the play, both Prince Charles and the Duke of Buckingham were identified as leaders of the pro-war camp, although neither man possessed the ability to harness the supposedly prevailing mood of the time. The Duke of Buckingham, seethed with anger at his perceived snubbing by Count Olivares when he was in Madrid, and Charles remained bitter about the abandonment of the Palatine issue during the Spanish marriage negotiations. But on the other hand, the act of leaping into a war with Spain was not as simple as they might have liked. In addition, the tension caused by James's opposition to the war that his subjects wanted was a dilemma exacerbated by the king's struggle with that other pillar of his realm, Parliament. Before we talk about King James and his parliaments, I wanted to let you guys know about something in case you weren't aware of it. Maybe you don't know what When Diplomacy Fails is all about, and if that's the case, you might not be aware that we're on Patreon, and for $5 a month you can get an hour of extra content every single month. At the moment, we're looking at Poland is not yet lost, which is a story, a narrative, if you will, that examines the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century. It's a story that's very rarely told and really should be told more often, and that's why I'm bringing it to you in the Patreon format. By joining Patreon, you'll get shout-outs like you heard at the start of the show, you'll get access to extra content, and you'll also get many other things into the future, such as merchandise and some other surprises I am sitting on and will reveal in due time. Patreon is the best way to support this podcast, guys, especially as I'm pursuing my PhD, and in recent news, I am basically halfway through it, if you can believe that. I couldn't have gotten this far without you, and I really appreciate the support that's come my way so far. I really do hate asking for support, it's literally my least favourite part of being when diplomacy fails, but in the past, you guys really have blown me away with your generosity. Of course, you could support this podcast in other ways too. Please do join the Facebook group, which recently passed a thousand members, if you'd like daily posts and conversations with yours truly and a whole load of other history friends. Maybe you don't want to be sociable though. In that case, I would ask you to please leave us a review on iTunes. I haven't asked this in a really long time, to be honest I've forgotten all about it, but I do see them and it is lovely reading them all and hearing what you think about this show iTunes reviews helps all those sneaky little algorithms get us out there, which at the end of the day is the real goal here. Okay guys, I have nattered long enough. If you've listened through this section, thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show and King James's struggle with Parliament. The Parliament of 1621 had not ended well, either for King James or for his subjects. Indeed, King James reportedly declared his intention during the tail end of the 1621 session, to never call another parliament in his lifetime. This bitterness on James's part and the criminal proceedings against various MPs can all be explained by the anti-Spanish tone of the 1621 session, which took King James by surprise. Although in 1622 a recall of parliament was requested by some, 
James refused to recall Parliament, until the success or failure of the Spanish negotiations were indubitably demonstrated, or until he could be assured, that the Commons would display a different spirit. 1623 told a different story, largely because of the breakdown in the Spanish match plan and the return of the invigorated Prince of Wales and Buckingham in October of that year. 1623, of course, had been immensely stressful for King James, and although in that year he was only in his late 50s, the strains of recent years had caught up with him. Perhaps the weighted diplomacy of his son-in-law had worn him out, or perhaps the father's worries about the peril and disgrace of his daughter's position had also caused him to age more quickly. Either way, the historian David Harris Wilson was able to note that by late 1623, King James's policy of peaceful diplomacy was now thoroughly discredited, and his habit of yielding to his son and his favourite had now become fixed. Their policy filled him with alarm, and he clung instinctively to friendship with Spain, but his only defence was to sink into a state of distracted inaction which could not last. Indeed, distracted inaction was an apt phrase to describe King James's behaviour, but the Venetian ambassador to London was also well-placed to provide a comment on the king's state of mind, and he wrote, No man living knows what is really passing in King James's mind. He is sagacious, deep and impenetrable. Some think he is playing his usual game, having secret objects very remote from external appearances. Others believe he has an understanding with his son and the favourite, and while they seem on the popular side, he follows his ordinary and natural inclinations solely. But the most certain thing of all is that the king will do nothing good unless by force or by fraud. However, this want of a plan didn't mean that MPs had the run of the place once Parliament reconvened in February 1624. Interestingly, an overlooked explanation for the lack of gumption on the part of those members of the Commons to debate on a given policy must be their fear of punishment or prosecution. In 1621, after all, several MPs were placed in the Tower for speaking out against the Spanish match policy and for loudly criticising the then-chosen course. One such figure was Sir Robert Phillips, who we met in a previous episode, but he was by no means the only one to suffer such a fate. Those MPs who were assembled in Parliament from February 1624 were certainly interested in discussing matters relating to foreign policy, but they were wary of not straying too far outside the boundaries of acceptable discussion, for fear not just of what would happen to them, but of the King's propensity to forcibly dissolve the Parliament. As if adding substance to such fears, King James remarked on the 24th of March 1624, almost as a veiled warning to those assembled, that he had broken the necks of three parliaments one after another. The spring of 1624, then, was full of disappointments and contradictions for those MPs. Prince Charles had distinguished himself in the Parliament of 1621, and it was expected that he and Buckingham would do the same in this latest session, especially considering his father's declining health. Yet, when the Prince of Wales had tried to monopolise the debate and make promises to the Commons and the Lords, these promises were immediately violated by his father, who evidently wasn't willing to relinquish the reins of power just yet. On the 11th of March, 1624, Charles had announced first to the Lords and then to the Commons that the King would ask for no money for his own needs, an announcement which was rendered hollow three days later, when on the 14th of March, King James demanded greater subsidies and a payment of debts, 
while remarking that he remained at odds with the opinions of many of his MPs. Not only did the king need money, he was also unwilling to abandon the Spanish policy which many of his subjects had come to loathe, when during one assembly, the Archbishop of Canterbury opened proceedings by informing the king of the profound joy of his subjects at the news that he was sensible of the insincerity of the Spanish in their dealings with him. King James replied by denying that he was in any way sensible to such a thing. Any assumptions that Prince Charles would take over the business of handling Parliament or that war with Spain was virtually inevitable were dashed with these revelations in the middle of March. As the Venetian ambassador put it at the time, there was nothing more certain than the king's disinclination for a rupture with Spain. In fine, the king is the same as ever, variable, tricky, inscrutable, determined upon peace, dominated by fear only, and the forger of every mischief. Subsequently, after Buckingham had literally got down on his knees before the king, King James agreed in principle to use any subsidies for a war with Spain, rather than the purpose of settling his debts. However, he seemed to have had his fingers crossed, because at the same time he altered the wording of his original request, so that instead of war against Spain, the funds were due instead to be used for this great business, an alteration which some found suspicious. It must be added, even with the confusing negotiations between Parliament and King, the Parliament of 1624 was the most productive Parliament of the entire Stuart period. Notwithstanding the tricky issue of war, legislation was passed in abundance. 35 public and 38 private acts were passed. The ineffectiveness of the 1621 parliamentary session seems to have spurred MPs onward, and there had been much business outstanding from that session which was here dealt with. In short, the Parliament of 1624 was definitely productive and highly active, just not in the way that some of the more belligerent statesmen would have wanted. James wanted to have his cake and eat it. He wanted to make some sort of impression upon the Palatine crisis, and to make some sort of contribution towards restoring his family to their homeland, but he didn't want to be beholden to the Commons. One of James's commissioners had warned him that relying on Parliament for supply during wartime would invite the domination of that body, while other figures wished to prevent the strengthening of the alliance between Buckingham and Charles, and believed that a war with Spain would catapult both men into an unassailable political position. Thus, the king sought to find a loophole, where a limited war could be had in the name of the Palatinate, and he would not have to depend upon Parliament in order to get it. He found this solution in the Four Propositions, a policy which called for the naval rearmament of England, and the subsequent defence of English coasts, Irish coasts, and Dutch coasts. These four propositions were agreed to by Parliament. Money was provided for these tasks. King James then cynically appropriated these funds for the continental scheme that he desired, an ill-fated mission whereby Ernst of Mansfeld would lead a detachment of British soldiers to the Palatinate and free it from Spanish and foreign domination. The scheme pleased nobody. Parliament was opposed to it because it was too limited. It didn't ensure war with Spain, and it took the question of further supply out of their hands, not to mention the fact that the king had misused the funds which they had voted for, which cannot have helped to heal old wounds of mistrust. Prince Charles and Buckingham, the same, wished to have a wider war with greater implications for cooperation with the French and Dutch, and a more involved war with Spain as well. In addition, both men misunderstood the actual commitment of Parliament in this regard. 
which was to lead to much bitterness in later years between King Charles and his Parliament, as we will see and as is famously known. Finally, King James himself soured on the idea not too long after sending Ernst of Mansfeld and his partially recruited army towards the coast. In the weeks before his death, King James would be forced to accept that Mansfeld's army, reduced by desertion and disease, couldn't make any significant impact upon the conflict in Frederick's name. This was a bitter pill indeed, but even while 1624 had been a year of false promises, dashed assumptions and disappointments, for the English and Palatine parties alike, 1625 brought the potential for new plans and new alliances to take shape. The dispossessed elector, true to his character, had by no means given up hope yet. In the next episode, we'll examine that year of 1625 and see how Frederick's cause was joined by a great number of promises, to the extent that the Winter King began to dream that not only his homeland, but also even Bohemia, might yet be recovered. Without spoiling the story, it should go without saying that what Frederick actually got was somewhere short of what he had wanted. Either way, it's a fascinating story of further intrigue and diplomacy, and I can't wait to bring it to you. So I hope you'll join me for it, history friends and patrons. Until then though, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 31 of the 30 Years War. Thanks, honestly, so much for joining me and for listening to me rant about this incredible story for the last 30 minutes or so. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 